Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to Just Two Dads. I am Brian Altunian, along with my co-host, Sean Francis. And today we've got a fascinating conversation for you. Uh, we'll be talking with Faith Golden, not only an, an educator and a warrior, but a, a grandparent who's, uh, who's uh, as I say, her insistent intervention uh, actually put her family on the right path. So it's going to be a fascinating conversation for us today here on Just Two Dads. So welcome back. Again, I'm Brian Altunian. I want to thank everybody who's joining us on Facebook Live. Please feel free to leave some comments uh, as you have subject matter is, uh, is interesting to you and you've got some questions for us or for our guest. And if you're catching us on our YouTube channel, at we are just two dads. Hope you'll subscribe, share the content. Um, again, put comments, some sort of a note to us if there's a subject matter that you'd like us to cover on our Just Two Dads podcast. Um, and for those of you who are listening on podcasts and WSTX AM radio down in the U.S. Virgin Islands and, and on our new uh, Roku channel under Empowered Media Communications, welcome, everybody. Um, another another episode. Sean and I have been doing this for now. I think we're episode number 74. So we do this over a year and a half and uh, mm -hmm. having uh, phenomenal conversations. And we're, we, we know we're we're reaching the the our, the community that that we intended to reach. Um, folks who are dealing with some sort of either medically complex issue in their family or a disability or some special needs issue. And uh, for those folks who took that uh, situation and then turned it outwards and served the, the greater community. And today is no exception. I'm excited for us to be talking to our um, to our special guest. Um, before we jump into the conversation, I just want to say hello to my co-host and partner in Thrive, Mr. Sean Francis. How are you today, Sean? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And I am anxious and ready to jump right into it. So um, welcome to the show. My good friend, Faith Golden. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Good. 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 That's fantastic. Good. So as the way we, as, as um, anyone that's familiar with the show will know that we begin by having our guests talk about their origin. Um, each person, you know, that is in the role that, that, that we are as warriors and parents, you know, uh, you know, as a hero, if you're in the middle of doing what you do, you might not even see it that way, but you are a hero nonetheless. And every hero has an origin from which their superpowers come. So if you can tell us a little bit about um, yourself, um, how you were raised and what got you into the area, because what we're going to find out is that you're a grandparent to a child with special needs, but you were serving the special needs community before that, which goes back to when and how you and I met. As a matter of fact, because you're a warrior, that's how we met. But we'll we'll come back to that in a little bit. Let's go back and in, uh, in time and start with your your origin, and and, um, and then we'll we'll work our way up from there. Well, um, I could go way back, but uh, <laughs> basically, um, my father was first generation American. Um, they are, um, my uh, father's parents came from uh, Lithuania and Latvia, and um, my mother's parents were basically from Poland, Austria, Poland, and they came to the United States with a tremendous work ethic. And of course, they came not speaking English at all, and um, they learned the language very quickly. And one of the most important things to them was always education. 
So my grandparents did a really interesting thing um, because they only had X number of dollars and they sent their first child to college, which was the most important thing in the world to them was education. And she sent my father to college and my father sent the next brother to college. And then all three of the older kids sent the baby to college because he wanted to be a doctor. So education was always the most important thing to them. And my father became a teacher and he wanted his three daughters to be teachers. So I was the good kid. I was the middle one. I became a teacher. Um, and, you know, we were girls, so we should always be home ec teachers because, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're going to grow up in a family. You should know how to take care of them. So, right. Um, All right. Of the three of us, I um, went directly from high school to college. I actually graduated high school at barely 17. I had skipped really? a year of um, school. And um, I... That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> well, we moved from Ohio to California, and the education system was very different. So um, my third grade teacher thought that maybe I had a disability because I could never answer any of her questions. And that's because I was reading a book uh, under my desk the entire school day. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, was, I was bored to death. So they uh, oh, wait, you, you were bored to death here in California or you were bored to death in Ohio? I was born in Ohio. Yeah, but you were bored to death. You said you were oh, bored to death at school. here in California. In California. Okay, just wanted to get clarify which yeah. school system was. Because and it's funny, I, I, before you said that, I was going to ask, were you bored? <laughs> were you not challenged? And it's funny, we're kind of laughing here, but there's something to be said for that. Uh, because, sure. you know, when you're not bored, I just know, and I'm not trying to equate it to genius or any level of intelligence, but all I know is that I was always bored and I was always a problem academically in school because I was, I had great attendance uh, physically, but my mental attendance was abysmal because I was just never there and it really bored me. But I'm sorry, exactly. go ahead. And, and we know that to be the case, that children that are not challenged become behavior problems. Mm -hmm. um, and I went the opposite way. I wasn't a behavior problem, but I sat there and did nothing. So, I mean, I could already do cursive writing and I could already, you know, do everything that they were teaching us, the multiplication, whatever it was. I already knew how to do all that because I had already learned it the year before. So they skipped me ahead to fourth grade. And then in high school, um, we went from the AB, which is where you could start school in January if your birthday was that. And they moved us ahead again. So I was a whole year ahead in school. Wow. So um, a lot of my friends graduated high school at 16. Um, mm. But where my birthday was in March, I graduated high school at 17. So I graduated college with my teaching credential and my bachelor's degree um, at 21. Wow. And I had my mm. child at 22. <laughs> so um, I was a, a really precocious, I guess. <laughs> At, at doing things. So, um, so anyways, uh, education was always extremely important in our house and I'm an avid book reader. My daughter's an avid book reader. There's always books everywhere. Um, and my, my father, um, his, one of the things that he always said was you learn something new every day. And if you mm -hmm. don't, there's something wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. So that's, that's how I was raised. Um, and again, as the middle child, you know, the middle child is always the pleaser, if you will. 
Yeah, so, that's me. That was me. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I get it. So from there, you're you're going into then teaching general ed, or were you teaching special education at that point? Um, I actually, my credential is in home economics, which you know doesn't exist anymore. Right. So, right. But they uh, need to bring that back along with um, wood shop and mechanic. Exactly, and that's what my father taught. Um, my father was Ooh. a workshop teacher, and he taught mechanical drawing um, when we were in Ohio. But when we moved to California, he started teaching math. And mm. you know, back in the day before computer, that was a tremendously difficult job because you had to give kids homework every night. And so you mm. had to correct the papers every night, and you had to record the papers every night. So... Mm. Um, that's what the family was for, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, there you go. Uh, yeah, so um, the three daughters and my mom, we corrected the papers every night and we recorded them every night and it was a really tough job. Plus, my father never stopped learning. So um, he had um, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and a administrative credential. And eventually, um, he became a teacher in charge of driver training, and he taught driver training, you know, behind the wheel driver training. Yeah. He didn't mm -hmm. steal to do that, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And eventually, wow. he taught special ed driver training. Oh, oh wow. That's fantastic. I didn't even know such a thing existed, believe it or mm -hmm. not. Wow. So then how did you go from your general teaching, as far as the credential goes, to then teaching special education? Well, I came home to raise children. And when my oldest was 16, which makes my younger 14, I, um, well, I was teaching Lamaze classes all along. So from the time my son was six, um, I taught myself an obstetrics textbook and I learned to be a Lamaze teacher because I was always fascinated about birth and anything around medical stuff was always like, wow, mind blowing to me. And my, my kids to this day are like, oh my God, mom, you're watching surgery. That's so disgusting. <laughs> um, but, but I always thought it was really cool. Um, mm. So I wanted to be a Lamaze teacher after having two babies. I thought it was so interesting. So I taught Lamaze classes um, until the kids were old enough that I thought they could kind of be by themselves for an hour or two. Mm -hmm. So yeah. a friend of mine said to me one day, how would you like to work with disabled adults who are pregnant or parenting? And I Ooh, said, very specific. And I said, um, well, let me think about it. And she said, well, here's your first case. <laughs> that's a lot of time to think. Okay. Excellent. Got it. Yeah. So that's wow. what brought me into the world. And as I was working with these adults and I was going into labor and delivery with them and then helping them with the babies once they were born, um, I found that all of their children had disabilities. So I learned about the regional center and how to get them SSI and how to get them connected with all the services that were in the system. And I finally decided this is when I want to get my master's degree in. Hmm. Interesting. I went back to school and then there were three of us in college, my son, my daughter and I, we were all in school. Um, mm -hmm. I was getting my master's degree. She was getting her bachelor's and my, uh, and my son was in uh, junior college. So, um, so that's what I did and I loved it. And it was so interesting and 
you know, just learning about all these little ones and the different disabilities and what we could do through early intervention to get these kids help really early on. And it was just fascinating. I loved it. And I, I worked out of my car and went to people's houses for two plus years. Finally, somebody said to me, you know, they need a preschool teacher at Hart Street School. And I went, oh, but I love what I'm doing. They said, just go meet her. So I went to meet her and she said, well, let me introduce you to the principal. So I went in to meet the principal and she said, do you have an early childhood special ed credential? And I said, yeah. And she said, you're hired. (laughs) Wow. I said, hired for what? (laughs) Right. She said, well, we we need an early childhood special ed teacher. And I said, but I was just here observing, you know, don't you need references? And don't you want to see all my work samples that I've been putting together, you know, through all of my, she said, no, you're hired. And I said, can I think about it until Monday? (laughs) So um, I talked. Which obviously you could. Yeah. Which obviously you could, because, you had the upper hand because they were like, we need you. We need you. Yeah. yeah. So how yeah. long did you do that then? Uh, I taught preschool special ed for 10 years until okay. um, we found out that I have what's called an IgA deficiency, which is um, an immune compromised uh, system. And <clears throat> the doctor said, if you would like to live to see grandchildren, you will stop teaching now. Mm. So, um, because I was sick all the time and they were running out of antibiotics to treat me with. And so that was the end of my teaching career. Wow. How long ago was that, by the way? Go ahead. How how long ago was that? If I had a memory, I could tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was going to kind of get to some context with that. So, and just for anyone that might not quite catch it, the reason why the doctors are telling you that is because obviously if you're in an environment where you got kids coming in, to the school, you know, in classroom every day, kids yeah. are a bunch of things, blessings, precocious, active, and beautiful little Ch- petri dishes. And petri little, dishes, absolutely. And little <laughs> yes. But my principal and I were very good friends. So we had a deal, which was that I could send kids home. Usually it's only the nurse can send kids home. But in my classroom, I could send kids home because mm-hmm. it was better for all the other kids if I was in the classroom teaching as opposed Mm -hmm. to substitute there. So if a child came in with a runny nose or they didn't look good or they had had, you know, whatever the symptoms were, I would call the parents and say, come and get them. You know, you're not allowed to send them to school sick. And that, that helped for a little while. But when it finally got to the point that it was IV antibiotics for me, or that was, you know, curtains, um, I, I had to stop teaching and, I'm going to say it was probably about 2008, Um, but I I wasn't done, you know? (laughs) Sure. Right, right, right. So so if if anything has seen during the, during the pandemic, you know, this now sensitivity or at least awareness of folks who are, you know, immunocompromised, um, you know, it, it, it can be very dangerous if you, if you, if you get sick, especially if there's no way to treat you, antibiotics don't, don't work any longer. So, um, so, but you're dealing with that 15, almost 15 years ago. So amazing. Right. 
and so that's that a, was almost and that's a hereditary. That's a hereditary. It's hereditary. My my son has it. Um, we don't know if my daughter has it, um, mm -hmm. and we don't know if my grandchildren have it because they haven't been tested yet. So this okay. pandemic has been horrible for us. Um, yeah. I, I was telling Sean when he asked me when I was available to do the podcast, I said, anytime I don't go anywhere. Hmm. I can't go anywhere. I can't take the risk because IgA is your first line of defense for mm -hmm. anything that invades your upper respiratory. And I don't have any. Wow. 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 Are you able to, and if you don't mind me asking, are, are you, with that diagnosis, are you able to comfortably get vaccinated or does that, or is that, Risk. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. So I've had all the vaccines, but what happens with me is you would have a pneumonia vaccine and it would cover you for life. My um, immunities wane. So I have to be, I have to be tested every so often for my immunities. And then um, oftentimes I think I've had the, the pneumonia vaccine three or four times because it doesn't last. Oh, wow. And I think there's, there's some context that you provide for those that, think you know and it wasn't meant to be part of the topic here today but i think it just it, it it fits and it's timely which is that as we talk about people that are just so black and white in terms of their view to get or not get va vaccinated we have to understand for those of us that believe you know you need to get vaccinated it it it, it, it it's it's um you know it, it protects us it protects those around you you need to do that you need to wear a mask we have to understand that there are people that want to get vaccinated and can't or do and still are at risk as in your case Absolutely. so if this was about 15 years ago at that point that takes us back to that fateful day of that at that car wash in uh tarzana california <laughs> which is where faith and i met and you know we always like to say that you can never know too many good people um i happened to be at a car at the car wash and it was one of those um you know, you're, you're waiting for the car to get to be ready. They tell you when it's ready. I'm standing there and my son, Elijah at the time must have been, uh, two, maybe three, somewhere around there. And he's kind of running around. And I really don't remember if he had been diagnosed at this point, mm -hmm. but he was at, he, he wasn't diagnosed, but he was at least in early intervention. So he was getting therapy and faith was the first person outside of my wife to ever notice anything that didn't quite seem right enough to just and I don't remember if she just said, is your son on the spectrum? You know, I think we we were talking to begin with, but she's, you know, so fearless with her observation, uh, her words and her loves. And she just happened to ask. And it was a thing where I, I think my response was like, he hasn't been diagnosed yet, but he's receiving therapy and everything. And, you know, we just had a great conversation and exchange of energy. And, you know, and we exchanged numbers at that time and have been, um, friends ever since. And so the thing is, and, and take us, if you will, Faith, from that time, because at that point, did you have your business at that point or did you launch that after? I may I have shortly had, after. I may have had its apparent um, at that point. Um, and what we were doing with its apparent was um, we were helping parents to parent their children to understand why their kids had the behaviors that they had and that behaviors always have a reason, they always have a purpose, but also helping parents with the IEP process because it's so overwhelming. Overwhelming, especially yeah. the first time. Oh, especially the first time. And I mean, you're, you're sitting there 
across the table from 13 people and they're the mm -hmm. experts and you feel like you know nothing. But the right. truth of the matter is you are the expert on your child and they lead you to believe that you know nothing. So, right. um, so my purpose was to really empower parents to know that was extremely important and also to help them because who wants to live in a house where there's nothing but yelling and screaming? Nobody's happy. Sure. Right. So right. Absolutely. That was my purpose with, with, with the parent. Okay, great. And so you did that, you had that business for a while, and then we transitioned to um, where you are now fighting mm -hmm. as a, um, as a warrior and everything, but from an even more personal standpoint as a grandparent. So if you can take us through that and explain um, how that came about, what the condition is and, 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 uh, and everything. Well, um, <laughs> my, my son and his ex-wife called me one day and they said, happy Hanukkah. <laughs> and I said, it's Thanksgiving. And they said, no, happy Hanukkah. And I said, what are you talking about? And they <laughs> said, what have you been wanting as a gift for years? And I went, oh, my God, oh, my God. So anyways, the bottom line was they were expecting a baby. Um, That's awesome. And, yes. And they went through, you know, all of the prenatal visits and all of the tests. And um, some of the early tests were the, um, the AFP test. And they were positive or iffy for, like, Down syndrome and that kind of thing. So um, they went on to have um, an ultrasound I think at like 30 something weeks or late 20s weeks. And they found that the baby had growth in her heart. And they said that these growths, they gave it a name that was a real scary name called rhabdomyomas. Try saying that. Mm. Um, and so she went to see a cardiologist and the cardiologist said there is a 60 to 70 percent chance that your fetus has something called tuberous sclerosis complex but there is no way to tell until the baby is born and mm. they were way past any possibility of doing an abortion because the fetus is viable at 20 weeks so did they explain what that what that complex was? Did they give you, you know, they, they did. Um, yeah. But my son was never really good at explaining everything to me. And I think that he was also trying to be as upbeat and as positive as he possibly could for himself right. and for his ex-wife, the, the mother of his baby. So he didn't do a lot of research. But with my background, I immediately delved into it and I learned everything I possibly could learn about it. And it was really scary. So what tuberous sclerosis complex is, is first of all, it's a very rare disease. There's um, only about 50,000 people in the United States who have it and 100,000 people worldwide who have it. So the, the body... Um, produces or doesn't produce um, certain um, compounds that allow the body to make 
tumors in different places of the body. I always say think of little tiny potatoes because I call them tubers, but they're actually tumors. And they grow in their hearts, in their kidneys, in their brains, and in other parts of the body. Um, and they also have um, a telltale sign. It's called an ash leaf spot. It actually has a you know scientific name. But that's one of the things that if they have two of the um, different signs that a doctor will usually say, yes, they have it. So, and a lot of times they have seizures as well. So I knew that it was possible that this baby was going to be born having seizures because a lot of the babies are born having seizures. So what happened was, is that they were seeing a um, regular OBGYN who was going to be delivering the baby. And I was scared to death that this baby was gonna be born actually having tuberous sclerosis and she was gonna be delivered by a regular OBGYN at a regular hospital who didn't have the resources to take care of a baby that was gonna be born having seizures or having tuberous sclerosis and they wouldn't know what to do. So unfortunately mm -hmm. what happened was that two weeks before due date, the baby started having heart irregularities and the OB said, I'm not delivering your baby. She's now high risk, but they didn't have a high risk OB who had been following her. They had a high risk OB who was following, but didn't deliver. So now they were sent to UCLA to have the baby delivered, but they didn't have a doctor who knew the case. So let me, let me ask you, did they, did the doctor simply say, this baby is high risk, I'm not going to deliver, or this baby is high risk in the baby's best interest, someone that's a specialist needs to deliver it, let me help you find any, or it's just like, I'm out. I'm out. Wow. Great. I, I mean, and, that, that's what that's what I was told. I, I didn't go to any of the OB appointments. I was just going to ask that, if you had been in yeah. attendance to any of those, any of those meetings. No. My daughter-in-law, my ex-daughter-in-law was very... Um, she kept all of that really to herself and to the two of them. And I wasn't invited to go to any of those appointments. Um, mm -hmm. Her mother did go and her mother took some notes, but it's not the same as if I had been there because I would have asked a lot of questions. So as far as I know, basically the OB said, I'm not delivering this baby. Good luck. Find something. Wow. So, wow. but she also said this baby needs to be delivered right now. She's having heart irregularities. So they they went to UCLA and they induced labor. And when they turned off the Pitocin, which is what induces labor, they, yeah, right. they said, well, your body's not ready because it's not taking over. And they said, we're sending you home. Oh, my gosh. So, the, so there's no response to the Pitocin. And as a result, they're like... Right. So I just about went ballistic because I had read all of the material and everything on tuberous sclerosis. I knew what the possibilities were. I knew this baby had growths in her heart. I knew that it was very possible that she might not survive. 
she was having irregular heartbeats already and the resident or the intern or whoever it is who was seeing them said go home and i said are you out of your mind incredible so now meanwhile my son is mom calm down we don't want to get her upset she's carrying the baby whatever she does affects the baby and I'm trying to stay calm but i gotta tell you it's not my ammo <laughs> So they went home. And, and nobody had formally diagnosed TSC at this stage. Is that they right? Couldn't. They couldn't diagnose it until the baby was born. Oh, but my gosh. Yes, was 60 to 70 percent. She had it. Oh my so gosh. they said, come back in a week. They went back in a week. They induced her again. Same thing happened. Uh. It said, you can stay. And we can rupture your membranes and have a baby today, or we can send you home. And I talked to her mother and I said, they need to have this baby now. And her mother said, I'm not interfering. It's up to them. They're adults. Mm. Mm. And it's almost like you can't, you always strike a balance between not blaming someone and kind of at the same time acknowledging, hey, this needs to be done. But different people, we all respond to things different in different ways based on our experience. And yours is obviously and, exceptional. Yeah. And I yeah. didn't want to, you know, risk alienating my son, but I right. didn't want to risk this baby's life either. So I went to the doctor and I said, are you going to sign a piece of paper that says that this baby will come out alive if she's born next week? And of course, well, there's no guarantees, ma'am. So they That's went home. Point. <laughs> yeah. So they went home. And the whole time I'm thinking, this baby isn't going to live. Baby isn't going to live. This baby isn't going to live. So hmm. they went back the next week. She's now 41 weeks pregnant. Normal pregnancy is 40 weeks. And they induced labor again. And I said, are you going to send her home if this doesn't work? And they said, absolutely. No, she's going to have the baby. Hmm. So they induced labor. I'm not allowed in the labor or delivery room. It's just the two of them. And my son's coming out and giving us updates. Um, eventually, her blood pressure goes through the roof. So they have to give her medication for the blood pressure. Um, which is horrible for the mother. The side effects from the magnesium sulfate are just not great. The baby is finally born. Um, and the arrangements had been made that the baby is immediately taken to the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, and that I was going to go with my son and the baby to the um, intensive care unit. So they're taking care of the baby. She's doing fine. She's doing fine. Everything is okay. Um, she looks okay, um, and, and all of that stuff. Everything is good, everything is good, everything is good. So uh, NICU doctor comes in and I said, it's very possible this baby has tuber sclerosis complex. You need to do an MRI. We need to know if she has tubers in her brain. And the doctor says, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. They did a CT scan, showed nothing. Her brain is fine, there's nothing wrong. CT scan does not show tubers. Hmm. And so, of course, you knew this from the research that you had done then. Okay. So I said to the doctor, CT scan does not show tubers. You need to do an MRI. My son said, mom, leave it alone. They did a CT scan. Everything's fine. She looks perfect. She's not having seizures. The baby's fine. There's nothing wrong. They took her home. Oh, okay, yeah. great. So 
She's meeting all of her milestones. The pediatrician says, she's fine. Look at her. She's meeting all of her milestones. Everything is great. But I'm seeing things I don't like. I see the ash leaf spots. And I know she has rhabdomyomas in her heart. And she's seeing the cardiologist. And she's having irregular heartbeats. But she looks great. She looks perfect. Everything is fine. But I... In the back of my mind, 60 to 70%, she has Ashley spots. Anyways, so finally, I'm researching tuberous complex clinics. And you know what the bottom line is here? There was a TSC clinic at UCLA. The cardiologist never referred them to the TSC clinic at UCLA, which they should have done at birth we would have known at birth that she had it. So knowing that it can't be, it can't be determined, it can't be diagnosed prior to birth. It sounds like there's, you had, you know, a plethora of walls that were up that prevented you from being able to just find out, let's just get the test and, and see if this is done. And primarily in family. So nobody wanted to kind of rock the boat and, you know, we're all happy. We have a baby. It's our first. And let's, you know, she's fine. And everybody's saying that she's fine. So mom, stay out of it. Right. You know what you're talking about. Like the doctor and let that be a fine. lesson for, for families that are listening, listening. There's several things here. You know, if you're, if you're catching all of it, the, what you might be catching is the, the, the most obvious lesson, which is see, you should listen to your mom or see, you should make sure that you go ahead and push or whatever the case is. But the other thing is that compassion is needed on both sides. You know, people didn't get involved, didn't make a decision, didn't step up. And one, the biggest lesson is that nothing can be done about what didn't take place. So if anybody in the family is listening and hearing that, no fingers are being pointed. Number two, the lesson is that, you know, try and be, you know, a little more, uh, you know, open-minded to situations that don't necessarily cause any harm or don't, or don't necessarily hurt. Nobody judges you if you're, if you're resistant to, taking the step because when it comes to um, medical treatment, even just an annual physical, different people based on, I don't know, I, want, I almost want to say both gender and culture or whatever, almost don't like to deal with that even. But the bottom line is if we're putting off the inevitable, if, if, if there's something to, if there's a problem at hand, um, the sooner we find out about it, the sooner it can be dealt with. To ignore it because dealing with it is not a problem just means that it's a bigger pain in the butt to deal with, you know, later on. So, well, and your first child as a, as a child who's having their first child, you know, you're like, I've never done this before. And you can take one of two ways. I'm doing all the research myself. I'm, I'm figuring out where development, you know, milestones are. And, you know, and then I've got my mom who's, you know, in my ear and, and, you know, do I listen to my, to my own instinct or do I listen to my mom? And, and by the way, I, said this before faith, I had the same situation with our first child who actually is joining us on and <laughs> joins us every week on our podcast, Joe. Um, and, uh, where my mom's like, you know, maybe you should have her hearing checked. And, and we had her hearing checked and the, and the hearing Institute was like, her ears are fine. She can hear everything. But if you are concerned, here's the challenge, right? Some people will just end there. We actually had somebody who said, but if you're concerned, the next step that you can take is go see a neurologist. And so we went to go see a neurologist and I went to go see the neurologist just so that I could kind of put an end to it and say, look, mom, 
I did it and you know, there's nothing wrong. And then of course we had the diagnosis of, of, of a little bit of a developmental delay. Um, and so, you know, after that, I was like, you know, I better listen to my mom more often, but, um, but your instincts were, I mean, this was not, you know, this is not, you know, something mild. This is something with, you know, tumors growing inside various, you know, vital body organs. And so, so they've taken the baby home now and, you know, and when do they, cause, because something occurred that made them kind of go, Oh, wait a minute. So can you tell us about that? How long into this now that taking the baby home? And Well, it was me. Um, <laughs> I'm a child development specialist. I was watching this baby. I was there at least three or four days a week, um, working with her, making sure that she met all of her milestones. And by the way, she walked at nine months, which is really, which is really early. Yeah. She was doing great. But I knew in the back of my mind from my research that something wasn't right. And, you know, I tell parents all the time, if you think something's wrong, you got to check it out. Parents yeah. are almost always right. But in this case, I was right. So I looked at tuberous sclerosis clinics. I went to the tuberous um, TSC Alliance website. I found... TSC clinic. There's one in Oakland. There's uh, one in um, at Children's Hospital in Orange County. There was one at UCLA. So I did some research and I find that they were doing a study on um, children that were 12 to 18 months. So I, I talked to my son and I said, just like what you just said, it won't do any harm to take her. Let's take her. Let's see what the deal is. And, and it was very expensive, like $1,800 or something like that, to have the genetics run um, to see mm. if she had TSC, but they were paying for it as part of this study. So I said, let's just take her. So You almost have to at that point, considering right? what it would cost otherwise. Yeah. Right. So, so I got him on the phone with the, the doctor, the head neurologist, and they talked and one of the things that she said was that the patent or whatever on their genetics test was running out and eventually it wouldn't cost that much, but to bring her in and let's check her out and let's see what the situation is. But they dragged their heels long enough that she was past 18 months and she couldn't get in under the study, but I was relentless and they finally made an appointment to go in and see the doctor when she was around two, the doctor took one look at her and said, she has tuberous sclerosis. We need to do an, uh, an EEG. Wow. And how did he wow. notice that by just by looking at her? How was that possible? From, from the rhabdomyomas heart, from the tumor, the rhabdomyomas in her heart, and the ash leaf spots. And she, I don't know how many she has. I don't remember. But they're way obvious. So if now you the know... Spot, the spots are obvious to the naked eye. How do they determine the tumors on the, on the heart? Because she'd been followed by her cardiologist since the day she was born, and they're still there. Um, a lot of times they disappear by the time the kids are a year old, but hers are still there. Huh. And yet still. there's still, and yet there was still this fight to even get a diagnosis. It seems like, you know, if they're there on the heart, it's it's obvious that those are there. And then the the, yeah. the marks that you were that you were talking about are there, but they they could be something else. 
and mm. they weren't causing any harm. Um, in the beginning, they were in the way of um, how her heart was beating. Um, but as she got bigger, they stayed the same. So they became not a problem. So it wasn't impairing her in any way, shape or form. So she wow. was, so she was very energetic. You know, like I said, she walked at nine months. So she, it didn't impair her in any way, but I knew from everything I read that the likelihood was there. Well, she so, had her first EEG, um, mm -hmm. which was to check to see if she was having seizures. And in a four hour period, she had eight. In a four hour period, she had eight seizures, mm -hmm. two years old. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Wow. So, so all I could think was this child has been having 48 seizures a day since she was born. Considering and, that eight hours, yeah, I mean. And what kind of damage have those seizures done to her brain? Nobody knows. And you know what? Honestly, it doesn't make, it doesn't make any difference. And, and, and let me tell you why. My son and I were talking about this this morning. They put her on a medication called Keppra immediately which was to stop the, the seizures. It never, seizures. It, never, yeah. it never worked. And they ended up adding another medication, another medication, and another medication. So by the time she was three, she was on four anti-seizure medications. Jeez. None of them worked. She was still, every time we took her in for an EEG, having at least 14 seizures a day. So mm. this is one of the things that we talked about this morning is maybe it was a good thing that she hadn't been diagnosed and she wasn't on the medications because each and every one of those medications that she was on was a Valium type medication mm. and it slowed her learning progress down. She would walk into walls. She would fall over things. She was like totally medicated. And if we had started medicating her at birth, would she have achieved what she achieved up until now? Mm, no, especially walking and everything. Yeah. Nobody knows. So yeah. it was a good thing. Nobody, you know, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Wow. So at, at, at this point now, how old is she and how, how is she doing and everything? So um, at this point, she's on four medications. She's three years old. The doctor at the UCLA TSC clinic tells us she has intractable epilepsy, which means that there are no medications that are going to control her seizures. And they said she needs brain surgery. Wow. So, and not only does she need brain surgery, but she needs it right this minute. And my next question. The pediatric neurosurgeon at UCLA, unfortunately, or fortunately, we're not sure, um, had just had a stroke. So he was not available to do the surgery. So my son did a lot of research, and we were either going to go to a hospital in New York, or we were going to go to Texas Children's. And Texas Children's um, had a less invasive type of surgery. It was a blessing. So we mm. took her to Texas Children's. This was the first time anybody ever sat down with us and 100% explained to us what tuberous sclerosis complex was. 
Because whenever we would ask at UCLA, how many tubers does she have and where are they and how are they affecting her? The answer we always got was, it doesn't matter. They're there. Wow. What? Didn't matter how many times I asked or how hard I tried to pin down the neurologist. The answer always was, it doesn't matter where they are or how many. So at Texas Children, the doctor, whose name I don't remember, and he was such a blessing to us, and I will bless him for the rest of my life, sat down with us and said, here's a tuber, 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 here's one, here's one, here's one. Wow. Here's one. She had more than 50. More than five, 50? Five, zero, 50. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. And, and they never go away. They just continue to grow within the body. And this one's next to her speech center. This one's here. 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 And so they, they prepared to do the brain surgery. But the morning they were preparing her to do a special kind of EEG where they actually drill holes through the skull and put the EEG leads directly on the brain. She was in her little gown and she was all set to go. My, she's not quite three. They went to the parents and they said, we're not doing the brain surgery. And they said, why not? And they said, because nobody's ever seen her have a clinical seizure. So what does that mean? So what's a clinical seizure? Yeah. They've never been able to correlate what they see on the EEG with anything that she's doing. So, no physical manifestation of what exactly, they're seeing. Exactly. Got it. So they said, we're not doing brain surgery on her. And they said, and furthermore, she's tremendously over-medicated. She doesn't need to be on all these meds. They're not doing anything. The only thing they're doing is causing developmental delays. We want her off all these meds. Hmm. So... We went back to UCLA and we told the doctor what we had been told. And she said, well, I really think she should stay on all the drugs. And we said, we're the parents and, oh, no. Locked up. and we want her weaned off, but she had to be weaned off gradually. And every time they would wean her off of a drug, we would get an interesting experience. So the first drug we weaned her off of, if I'm correct, she had zero seizures. It didn't make any sense. Okay. So. Second one we weaned her off of, she had zero seizures. The third one we weaned her off of, she went back to 14 seizures. And none of it makes any sense. But, but what happens with an EEG is it's just a picture of what's happening at that moment. At the moment, yeah. So you, so you don't know. So we, we left her on the Keppra, which is the first medication that she was on. And we switched hospitals. We went to Children's Hospital, Orange County. We had the best doctor ever, Dr. Zuponk, who was an epileptologist. And the first thing she said to us was, we need to have the genetics run. We need mom and dad to have genetics run. And we need to take her off. Keppra doesn't work on the kind of seizure she has. Oh. Wow. No wonder she's having seizures. It doesn't work. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, so, far. Yeah. so we move forward to kind of where she's at now. Um, where, you know, where do things stand with the, the brain surgery? And, uh, and then you just as a, 
warrior that you are by nature and by by heart you know what can you tell people that are new to the diagnosis might suspect it um and any anything of value in terms of you know what they can take um well first of all she's doing really well she's nine she's in the third grade she's developmentally delayed in a lot of ways you'd never know there was anything wrong with her with her to look at her um she is the light of my life um i love her to pieces we do a lot of zoom phone calls um where we play on the computer um uh, in terms of schooling she has uh individualized education plan she has a what's called a one-on-one -on -one or other classroom support so she has an, an adult with her at all times because she has a seizure disorder so she can have a seizure at any time. She she mainly has what they call silent seizures. And if you go to the epilepsy website um, and you think your child is having seizures, they actually have um, a link that you can go to that will help you diagnose what type of seizures your child might be having, which is extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. um, she yeah, where's that where's that found, Faith? I'm sorry. Epilepsy.com. Epilepsy.com. Okay, good, good. All right. And for those watching, it's on the screen. Good. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, she basically has absent seizures. She, um, so she's not there and, and her eyes will blink or she'll rub something. Um, they can last 20 seconds. We had an experience with one that lasted a very, very long time, but that's really unusual. Um, her long-term memory is fantastic. Her short-term memory is not very good. She's not reading very much. She Math is really difficult for her. But if you ask her anything about penguins, she can tell you a whole story. Mm. So it, it just kind of depends on, on, the, varies. Yeah. Yeah, on what her interests are. Her social skills are not nine-year-old level, but that's okay because a lot of people with tuberous sclerosis never get past the infant stage. 50% um, of people with tuberous sclerosis have um, autism as well. Um, 50 or more percent of people with tuberous sclerosis have um, comorbid attention deficit hyperactive dis disorder, which she mm -hmm. has. 50% uh, mm. or more people with tuberous sclerosis have um, epilepsy. Wow. So, there's a lot of stuff that goes with this, and there's a tremendous amount of research being done um, on people that have been diagnosed with ASD to go back and see if they have tuberous sclerosis, because again, the 50%, um, and so a lot of people who have ASD are being diagnosed with tuberous sclerosis because of their mm -hmm. ASD diagnosis. Gotcha. So okay. There's a tremendous right. amount of research being done around epilepsy and um, autism spectrum um, disorders because of the the, um, the connection. And tuberous sclerosis is considered um, a rare disease. So mm -hmm. there are um, there are there is help for um, people with tuberous sclerosis through the um, National Organization of Rare Diseases. So mm -hmm. for well, if you wanted to go to have a second opinion, you live here and you want to go to New York, um, there are funds available to help pay for that trip and to pay for the hotel um, stays for, for that kind of thing. 
So I think the most important takeaway from all of this is don't be afraid to find out if there is a medical issue. You know, the worst thing that happens is you find out that there's nothing wrong and you can go, no problem. Right. Right. And right. Right. If there is something, then you'll deal with it. Your family and your friends and your community, they are all there for you to help you. I am um, an education parent mentor for the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance. Um, if your child has tuberous sclerosis and they're going to a school and they've never heard of it, you can call an education parent mentor. We can help to explain to the school what tuberous sclerosis is, what the school can do to help the child, what kind of supports the child needs. And we can help the parent with advocacy for the child. You don't have to do it all on your own. That's fantastic. That's great. So we have the, everything up in the screen with anyone that's, you know, that's for those that are watching versus listening, those resources are on the screen. And we're at the point right now, we did tell you, uh, Faith, that that hour would go by very quickly, as you see it has. <laughs> and this is the uh, the portion of the show where we, you know, as we get ready to kind of close out, we usually ask our guests to um, the following, you know, our ability to change the world is going to be based on our ability to change ourselves or our willingness to do so. So with that in mind, give us an example of just one thought or belief um, that you held dear and believed for, you know, quite some time, maybe all your life, but no longer do. Um, belief that I no longer do. I, I think, well, I've been thinking about this and I think the most important thing that I do now that I didn't do then that I think is really important and I'd like to pass on is listen to your children, stop what you're doing, put your phone down, stop what you're doing. If you want them to confide in you and talk to you when they're older, when they're four, five, six, seven, and they come to you with a problem that's huge to them, stop what you're doing and listen to them. I feel like I made that mistake when my children were young. I was extremely young. I didn't know it then, mm -hmm. but I know it now how important that is. To so, be more present. Yeah, to be more present. Yeah. Their problems seem so small when they're small, but if you mm -hmm. don't set the precedent then, so I, I make a concerted effort now to do that with all of my grandchildren. I have seven of them. I make a concerted effort to drop what I'm doing and to sit and to look them in the eye and to listen to them because it's so important for every child to know that there is an adult in their life that's going to take even their smallest hurts seriously and listen to them, not necessarily offer advice, but to listen to them so they know that they're heard. That's fantastic. And that, and that applies Beautiful. beyond, but it, but it starts at home. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Sure. Starts well, and, it, and usually if, it fits in with how we usually end, end our show anyways. Um, uh, so the perfect time. And again, Faith, thank you for, for being and, you know, walking us through this journey of uh, I'm sure heartache for you as you, as you watch from the sidelines, uh, you know, I think that the worst thing that a, a parent in your situation would want to have is, is your fears confirmed. Um, you'd be, I'd much rather be proven wrong than proven right in this situation. But uh, 
but you know, thank God the family has you, um, and um, and your granddaughter had you um, to be there to look out to, to look out for her future. Uh, you know, when I as we end the show, I generally always you know end it by saying, now more than ever, empathy and love is so vital. Um, if we see a situation that would, that just doesn't look right, have a feel of you know sense of empathy. Um, you may not know the situation. You don't know what the what the person, the individual, or the family is going through. So please have some empathy. And if you look through the the world through the lenses of love, the world's just going to be a, a a better place. And so you know, again, thank you for being a part of this uh, part of our our um, our episode, our, our, this episode, our series of uh, of just two dads, um, because it's fascinating. This falls a little, you know, it's it's a it's a part of our show. Again, the medically complex area is just as as important as talking about other things like autism spectrum disorder and ADHD and those types of things, because it's a challenge that families go through that, you know, that's not what they, it's not what we, uh, it's not what we bought when we bought our ticket. It's not what we thought we were going to get as we become parents. But, uh, um, but thank God for how warriors like you to uh, be out there and, and, and looking out for, for all of our kids. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand it over to Sean to, to close us out uh, today. Well, I, I want to, uh, once again, thank Faith for her time here and um, looking forward to the value that we can add to um, other people's time. Somebody's going to look at this, you know, even though we're going live now, somebody's going to look at this two, three, four, maybe six months from now, maybe even later and have value added. And I'm looking forward to the value that we can add with future projects and outreach as well. Uh, I want to thank uh, everyone that took the time to uh, listen and that will be doing so. But as always, I want to thank the women in my life without whom I could not be who I am. That is uh, my amazing mom, uh, Jen, and my wonderful wife, Laura. And just remember that, you know, somebody someplace needs to know that they matter, needs to know that they're seen, needs to know, uh, needs to know that they're heard. And our biggest nightmares are somebody else's goals and dreams. And um, as the government Muhammad Ali said, you know, service to others is the rent we pay for our room on earth. So we got to make sure that we take care of each other and do the best we can to be the best we can. So with that said, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Faith. Thank you, everybody. We'll thank catch you again on another episode of Just Two Dads.